0: Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you all. Our plan tonight is to continue our series on the doctrine of Scripture, which we've called, Did God Really Say? Um, And if that allusion or that reference in the title is lost on you, uh, that should become clear tonight. Um, But basically we've been looking at the the nature of the Bible and we've come at it from a couple of different angles. And so we began uh, with the idea of scripture as revelation, as part of how God has revealed himself uh, to humankind. And then we looked at the attributes of scripture, namely its necessity, that because God is transcendent, uh, we need the scriptures so that we can know who he is uh, what he wants of us, what he's done in Jesus Christ for our salvation. Uh, we've looked at the sufficiency of Scripture, uh, that because this uh, this Bible flows from the purpose and intentions of God, it's everything we need for life and godliness, not enough to know God or his will exhaustively, um, but to know it truly. Uh, and then we've also looked at the clarity of Scripture and how, Because God condescends to speak in human tongue and through human culture, uh, the Bible is accessible and understandable. And as we move on tonight to the authority of scripture, I want to connect the dots that each and every one of those flows from God's character, okay? The revelation flows from the fact that God is light, that he is self-revealing, that he desires to be made known. The uh, necessity of scripture flows from his transcendence and his holiness. The sufficiency of scripture flows from his benevolence and his goodness, okay, that he actually desires to give us what we need. And the authority of scripture flows from his sovereignty. And this is an important point to make because the Bible is not uh, inherently uh, authoritative in and of itself, Sometimes theologians like to use the phrase that the authority of the Bible is mediated authority, and I don't love that phrase because almost everyone who uses it is trying to downplay the significance of that. Okay? Um, but what we mean when we recognize that the authority of the scriptures are based on the authority of God is the same thing when we say that the words of a government— as written down or codified, represent the authority of that government, okay? In other words, the Bible is authoritative because it is God's word, okay? And so each of these stems from the nature and the character of God. And then next week, if you come back, we'll finish our series by looking at the power of Scripture, um, which I would encourage you to do. One last reminder before we get started tonight Uh We, after the service tonight, will be having a text in question and answer. So if over the course of the service you have some questions that you'd like to ask, you can see there's a phone number right on the top of the slide there. Feel free to just text in your question. Um, It's it's anonymous and we'll handle as many as there are uh, after the service. So with all of that being said... We'll go ahead and get started, and tonight we're going to look specifically uh, at Matthew chapter 4. So if you brought your Bible, go ahead and open up there. Um, If you didn't bring a Bible, right in the pew in front of you, you'll find a small black ESV Bible, and the index at the front will help you find the first book in the New Testament known as the Gospel of Matthew. To be in Matthew chapter 4. And before we read it, I'd like to tell you why we're turning to this passage. If you're familiar with the Gospels, specifically with Matthew and Luke, then you'll recognize what we read tonight as the temptation of Jesus. This is just following his baptism by John the Baptist. Uh, and uh, while he's in the wilderness, the devil comes and tempts him uh, and it should become pretty self-evident as we read it why we're looking here tonight. Um, but I'll unpack it just in case. It's because here we watch as Jesus responds to the temptation and uh, and lays out uh, his resistance, if you will, to the devil's temptation three times by stating, it is written. Okay, And the reason why this is significant is because much of the way that we think about God, much of the way that we think about ourselves, much of the way that we think about how to live the proper life as Christians is rightly and properly shaped by the words of Jesus. In other words, if we are going to call ourselves Christians, then we should believe like Jesus did, okay? And so what I want to look at tonight is not simply here uh, that Jesus uses or utilizes the scriptures. It is written over and over again in times of temptation, but that he puts himself under the scriptures and sees them as defining uh, his calling, his role, his identity, his path of obedience, and in doing so affirms and recognizes the authority of scriptures. In other words, when we read the Bible as authoritative, we read it like Jesus did. And that's especially important because every once in a while you will will encounter those who, because they rightly recognize that the phrase, Jesus is Lord, this anthem that flows all the way through the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, throughout the Epistles, into Revelation, uh, that that... Uh, that explains or points to the reality that Jesus is the primary authority of our lives. That's what Jesus is Lord means. And so sometimes the question comes up when we overemphasize the authority of Scripture, aren't we inherently underemphasizing the authority of Jesus? In fact, some have gone farther and said, we should reject and accept what we find in the Bible based on if it aligns with the person of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, because he is our final authority. Now, the problem with that statement uh, is that Jesus consistently, regularly, um, throughout the pages of the gospel, affirms the authority of scripture, And so even if we want to, like I said, uh, view Jesus as our final authority, he n- not only invests in the scripture authority, but places himself under the authority of, of scripture. And so that should be significant to us. One more thing before we read here. And that's where this passage takes place. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Jesus has just gone to see John the Baptist who's been baptizing people in repentance. And as he's baptized by John, a voice is heard from heaven that speaks and says, this is my beloved son in you I am well pleased. And while this voice from heaven is speaking at the baptism of Jesus, uh, the spirit, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove Descends upon Jesus and comes to rest on Him. Okay, now effectively, what happens there is both the identification by God of who Jesus is, my beloved Son, as well as the empowerment of Jesus for the ministry that He's been called to. And so, what plays out over the rest of the Gospel is the direct uh, follow-up to those realities. We see him operating as and and, uh, demonstrating the evidence of him being the Son of God. We see him filled with the Spirit and doing the miraculous and speaking with authority, uh, anointed for his ministry, and therefore the ministry follows. But before all of that, the next thing that happens after the baptism is not, and Jesus began to preach. The next thing that happened after the baptism is not, and Jesus began to heal the multitudes or did a miracle or anything like that. The thing that happens first is then Jesus was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, okay? So let's read the passage, and then we'll talk further. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days For it's written, he will command angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory, and he said to them, all these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we look at your word this evening, and as we look at Jesus in your word and how he views your word, I pray, Lord, that it would shape our understanding of scripture. I ask, Lord, that the self-same spirit that came upon Jesus and the self-same spirit that empowered and inspired Matthew to write his gospel would come to us as teacher tonight and work in our hearts and make us responsive to the word of God. We ask that you would do this work as you promised to do in this self-same Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. So why? Why here do we find Jesus in the wilderness? Why doesn't he go in to the populated places? Why doesn't he begin his ministry proper? Notice here in verse 1, it's not merely that Jesus wandered into the wilderness. It says here that he was led by the Spirit, okay? And so the Spirit comes upon Jesus, and the first thing the Spirit does is drive him into the wilderness and he spends a long period of time, 40 days and 40 nights, in fasting and in prayer. Okay. And it tells us specifically here why the Spirit led him into the wilderness. It says here to be tempted by the devil. Okay. In other words, this is a proving ground for Jesus. Jesus. Before he can begin his ministry, he has to be shown to be, he has to be demonstrably someone who the devil doesn't have a foothold in. Okay. If you go back and you look at the sacrifices of the Old Testament, one of the constant refrains in the requirements for the lambs or the goats or the calves or whatever is that they be whole, spotless, without blemish. Okay. The sacrifice required of sin needed to be perfect. And so the way this works out in the Old Testament is that you were to bring your sacrifice before the priests and they were to examine to make sure that they met the pre-qualifications. In some way, that's a pretty good way to realize, or to read what's happening here. In fact, Jesus' victory over the devil here is the baseline for all of the exorcism that follows in the Gospels. He's come and he's, in his words, bound to the strong man and then goes on to plunder his household, okay? And so uh, the other thing we need to realize in here is, is that in Jesus going through these things, there's two historical touch points that we should keep in mind. The first one uh, is in Genesis chapter 3, at the beginning of human history, where Adam and Eve are given a single command. They're placed in the garden You may eat of all of the trees of the garden, but this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat of, for in the day that you do so, you will surely die. And just like here in Matthew chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 3, the devil, in the form of a serpent, comes to Eve and tempts her. And similarly, that conversation comes down to the Word of God. And so here, Jesus repeats over and over again it is written. And there, Satan's opening question to Eve is, did God really say? Right? It's a question of what God has said. That's where the tension is. Now, on top of that, we need to recognize that unlike Adam and Eve's temptation, Jesus in a significant way has the deck stacked against him. They're not equal playing fields. Okay, and so whereas Adam and Eve are in the paradise we know as Eden, Jesus is in the wilderness. Whereas the temptation, which is also about food to Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree here, make these stones become bread. Whereas with Adam and Eve, they were told they could not eat of this one tree, but all the rest of the garden was a veritable smorgasbord for them to enjoy. Right, they were given everything they need, and just one thing was excluded. Here, the tempter comes when Jesus is hungry, and as you can imagine, after forty days and forty nights, so this is not, uh, you know, this is not mere hunger. This is starvation. Okay, um, at his most vulnerable physically is when this happens. Okay, um, and so we should read this as being not just an echo. Of what happens in Genesis, but actually a response to it. Okay. Paul unpacks this in one of his later le- uh, letters when he refers to Jesus as the last Adam. And so here's the first Adam, and his choices have direct consequences on all of humanity. He operates as being our forefather, as being what theologians sometimes call our federal head, And his decision, just like a governmental decision made by our president, if he declares war, guess what? We're at war, like it or not. In the same way, Adam's decision had consequences, reparations for all of us. So, uh, for in one man all sinned, Paul says in Romans, therefore all died. Okay. In the same way, Jesus here operating as humanity's representative needs to live the perfect life we cannot live, to qualify him as a sacrifice. In other words, Jesus here is not just operating as God who took on flesh, but as the ideal human who finally gets it right. Okay. The problem presented to us in Genesis 3 starts to be resolved here in the Gospel of Matthew. Okay. And so it begins differently. But there is a second historical touchpoint point that we need to understand uh, for what's happening here, and that comes from Israel's days in the wilderness. In fact, one of the easiest ways to draw this out is to see that every quotation that Jesus makes here is not just from the Old Testament or the Scriptures, but specifically from the book of Deuteronomy. All three of his it is written here come from Deuteronomy 8 and then two of them from Deuteronomy 6. Okay, so not just in the book of Deuteronomy, but in relatively close quarters. Now, the reason why that's significant is because in the same way that Jesus here is in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, so also Israel, because of their own sin, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. In the same way uh, that Israel was given the commandments and the covenant of God, and that's exactly what Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8 are about. So also here, Jesus is put to the test, will you live in light of God's word or not? But even there, as we'll see, there are differences, there, are, um, there is distance, there is more difficulty in what Jesus undergoes here, but just as we saw how Jesus is the last Adam, so also Isaiah identifies the Messiah who would come as the true Israel. In fact, the title, the Son of God, in the Old Testament is generally reserved for the people of Israel. And so Isaiah begins to talk about how my servant Israel, this is chapters 40 through 66 of Isaiah, and then suddenly he starts to shift and we find this other servant, this servant who's to come, who identifies with Israel, but not as Israel as they are, but Israel as they were meant to be, okay? And so Jesus here is operating as Israel 2.0, getting right what Israel got wrong, put towards the same temptation. I love how Martin Luther puts it. He says, one of the great differences between Moses in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament is that Jesus didn't come as a lawmaker, but as a law keeper. He comes here to fulfill the covenant. And so basically here, we see uh, again humanity at the crossroads, but this time humanity uh, is, is fully enfleshed divinity. My beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And like I said, as we look at how Jesus responds here, we shouldn't reduce this merely down to a successful way to resist temptation. Although that would be not just a beneficial sermon, but also a true point. Instead, I want you to notice that the challenge that the tempter is making here involves the authority, the authority of God's word, involves the authority of God. And so notice here where the first temptation begins. Verse 3, the tempter said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And the first thing that's helpful to understand is that little word, if there, in the Greek is a first class conditional, which means it would be just as appropriate to translate its sense. The devil here is not doubting that Jesus is the son of God. He's asking for a proof. He's asking for a demonstration. He's not saying, if you're the son of God, then he's saying, if you're really the son of God, he's saying, prove it. Now, also, notice that the tension here is something that is possible for Jesus to do. None of us have ever been tempted to turn stones into bread, right? But the thing is, is because he is the Son of God, he is empowered with the Holy Spirit to do things that we cannot do. In fact, we know that Jesus is capable of miraculous feeding, is he not? There's another occasion where he's in a setting much like this, away from the towns, away from the city, out in the wilderness, but with thousands of other people, many of whom did not bring lunch, and Jesus has compassion on them, and he takes a small meal of a child of loaves and fishes, and he multiplies it and feeds 5,000 people. Not only that, but also remember that Jesus points out that the nature of God is such that in the same way that our parents, if we asked for some bread, wouldn't give us a stone. So, also, how much more, if our parents being evil will give us what we need, will our heavenly Father provide what we need? Okay, and so there's a p- potential, there's a possibility here. But you also need to recognize what the temptation is the temptation is effectively independence. It's effectively to employ and enjoy the privilege and the power of being the Son of God for self-reasons, okay? And so it's different than Jesus having compassion on the multitude and feeding them. The question here is, you have the ability, why don't you just meet your own needs? Now, this is something that's helpful for us to understand at the outset, which is that God did not design human beings for independence, okay? And we can get that wrong because the Bible often identifies God as a father. And so sometimes, like in Jesus' story about the stone and the bread and asking our parents for something, we can make a comparison between those two roles. But our goal in raising children is that they function as adults, right? Independence. okay? We fail as parents when our adults still need us in a particular way, when they're still dependent. But with... With Christians, with God, with creation, the goal is not independence, but dependence, okay? And this is not just because of sin. It's not that God designed us to be independent, but because we screwed that up. Now we need God. We were always designed to need God. Before there is sin, before there is death, before there's the curse, before there's a fall, before Genesis 3... God creates Adam and Eve and provides for them a garden, gives them a purpose, intending it, and a mission statement to, you know, rule over dominion in his place, to represent him. Um, But also, they in and of themselves, even though they are not yet sinners, need God's input on right and wrong. That's the tension of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? Here's a chance for them to know for themselves independently, experientially, the difference between good and evil. But at that point, they don't just inherently know, "Oh, we shouldn't eat of that tree." They're told. they're dependent upon the Word of God, not because they're fallen, but because they're finite. not because they're sinners, but because they're created. okay And so the tension here uh, is that Jesus who has the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, would use it to meet his own needs, which is an expression of independence. But notice how he responds in verse 4, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now one thing I want to point out to you here is that Jesus responds here in the same way that he'll respond to the second temptation as well as the third in each case, he responds, it is written, okay? Now, the reason why I think that is significant because, uh, is because, remember, Jesus has just had a tremendous existential experience. At the baptism, a voice from heaven audibly speaks and defines his identity. In fact, notice that's the tension that the devil is bringing out. That whole heavenly voice says, you are my beloved son, And the devil says, since you're the son of God. But here, he doesn't lean on or rely on that heavenly voice, that existential experience, that encounter with God. Not only that, but in the baptism, the spirit comes upon Jesus. But here, he doesn't rely on a still, small voice or an internal witness of God's working. Instead, he responds, it is written. And I want to be careful with that tension here on the second one, because the only reason we would come to the conclusion that the Spirit is valuable in speaking for God is because that's exactly what the Bible says. The Bible talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that we all as Christians who believe in Jesus have been filled with the Spirit, have become the temples of God, and as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God. He goes on to say that the Spirit teaches us how to pray when we don't know what to pray by in utterances that can't be understood. Okay? The, the Spirit and his role in our life is one of leading and of guiding and you know, of speaking and all of these things. My point uh, is, is here that the authority, the definitive, the final authority for Jesus is that it is written. That's where he draws the line. Now notice here what he says. He says it is written man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. As I already mentioned this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now let me set up what's going on in the book of Deuteronomy 6, 7 and 8, okay? At this point Israel has been brought out of Egypt in what we call the Exodus. God has miraculously and powerfully delivered them from their oppression. He's brought them into the wilderness and given them the law and the covenant. And then all of the promises of entering into the land, they get to the gate of the land and decide not to trust God, and because of that, the whole generation dies off wandering in the wilderness, including Moses. And so the book of Deuteronomy, Moses stands at the border of the promised land with the new generation that's going to enter into it, and he reiterates the covenant, reminds them of what God has done and what God has said, and calls them to respond Not like their parents did in the wilderness in rebellion or disobedience, but in obedience. Okay, that's the message of Deuteronomy. Um, And in 6, 7, and 8, he's looking backwards and forwards. And so interestingly, when Moses says, man shall not live by bread alone, the context of this is he says, remember how God miraculously fed you for 40 years in the wilderness, Remember how for 40 years, God sent manna from heaven to take care of all of your needs so that you would learn, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so once again, we find a little bit of a difference here. Moses is employing the reality that it was the miraculous provision of God that proved Israel's need for the divine. In other words, there's a difference, if you will, if we were to try and translate this in a modern language. There's a difference between life and mere existence. Bread may sustain your body, but you were built for more than just to live at that level. You were built to experience, to encounter, to know, and to have a relationship with the God who made you, and that requires more than bread, okay? That requires uh, learning, like I said, dependence, And so notice how Jesus is responding and how it shapes here. He says, this is your identity, the tempter says. You're the son of God. That gives you ability. That means you're empowered. That means you're fully capable of taking care of your own needs. And he says, yes, but it's written in Deuteronomy that life isn't about the needs. That I also need every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, the goal is dependence. Now, a side note here. Not a single verse that that Jesus quotes here in this passage is what we would call messianic. Not a single one of these verses applies specifically to the Messiah who was to come. It's not like Psalm 2 or Isaiah 53. Here he takes the statements that were made to the total people of God as the covenant. In other words, Jesus here is operating in a way that is parallel to ourselves. Here he's given a choice, make bread or don't make bread, but he sees that choice as codified in God's commandments, in God's revelation, in the unpacking of our identity as God has shaped it. And so he responds here, it is written. And so, verse 5, the second temptation, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their heads, hands, excuse me, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. So notice there's a change in setting here. Whether in vision or physically transported, I don't know, but Jesus finds himself now at the highest point of the temple. As you can imagine, the temple in Jerusalem is a very busy and populous place. And so Jesus is is here, and the temptation is just throw yourself down, and then notice there's not just a change in setting here, there's also a change in tactic. Jesus responds to the first temptation, temptation it is written, and Satan tempts Jesus the second time saying, I can say things that God said. I know what is written as well. And he quotes here from Psalm 91. Now, this is especially important to recognize because it helps us alleviate one of the great pressures of when we talk about the authority of the word of God. Okay. Obviously here, the devil's intention is to utilize the word of God for evil and not for good. Obviously here, his quotation is an inappropriate use of the Bible's authority. That's why Jesus counters it, okay? Many of us have probably experienced uh, the uh, possibility of this, uh, that because the Bible is an understood authority, because it seeks, uh, because it represents itself as speaking for God, people can use it to bolster their own authority, to accomplish their own power and that is a real and significant thing. But I want you to notice that the way that Jesus responds is also, it is written. Okay? The, the, the thing that makes it possible to misuse the scriptures is twisting them, is using them inappropriately, okay? is using in them in a way that is uh, inaccurate. And interestingly enough here, Even the psalm that the devil quotes, we would find questionable, okay? Maybe you're familiar with the concept of proof texting, okay? A way of reading the scriptures which just finds a position that you want to justify and finds a single sentence ignoring the context, ignoring the setting in which it was said, ignoring what comes around it, and just slapping it out as being a demonstration that this is what the Bible teaches, okay? That's basically what Satan does here. In fact, he does something that's a little bit odd. Do you see the word and there halfway through verse 6? He will command his angels concerning you and, okay? That word and is not in Psalm 91. He quotes two different verses from Psalm 91, and here's what's super odd about it. All that lies between those two verses is this one phrase, in all your ways, okay? And so whereas he could have just paraphrased and left that part out because let's be honest, you can quote accurately and not quote entirely, but the fact that he skips it with an and is suspicious. Now, now it's worth saying, too, that if you read Psalm 91, it is an intense statement of God's supernatural protection of his people. This is the psalm that says, though a thousand on your left side fall on the front lines of war and a thousand on your right side, yet you will remain standing. If you read it, it is a strong pronouncement that if read poorly, basically says, nothing bad will ever happen to God's people. Okay. But if you read it closer, one of the things that the devil misses is that that's a promise made to the faithful, okay? In fact, I would suggest to you that when he leaves out in all your ways, and if you keep reading in Psalm 91, you'll see what those ways are, they're God's ways, okay? When when the righteous are walking in your ways, okay, God will oversee that, he will provide for that, but what is the devil tempting him to do here? It's a little bit different, okay? Now let's look at what the Psalm says specifically. He says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written he will command his angels concerning you, on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. In other words, he says, look, the scriptures are clear. No harm is going to come to you as one of God's people. So why don't you just swan dive off the temple? Clearly God will send in angels to protect you, to preserve you, to save you. Now, the problem here is there's a difference between the attacks of enemies and a suicide attempt. There's a difference between the faith of knowing that God can keep you where he leads you and the presumption that says, I'm going to throw myself in front of danger, now catch me. Okay. The temptation, once again, is, is related to this idea of independence, of separating yourself from God, of uh, here testing God. And so notice how Jesus responds. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and once again, Matthew is, or excuse me, Moses is encouraging them for their future based on the mistakes of the generation in the past. And so he says, you shall not put your Lord your God to the test as your fathers did at Mirabah." Okay. Mirabah is one of the many places over the 40 years in the wilderness where Israel complained and said, God has brought us out here to die. We don't have enough water for the people. He says, is God really in our midst? Okay, they were testing the Lord. They don't come in prayer and say, God, we need you. Please provide your people are thirsty. They come in anger and demanding and in complaint, And this doesn't just happen at Mirabah. In another place in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says, uh, speaking for God, you have tested me these ten times. Speaking of a round number of just all the time, continuously, regularly, this has been a constituency, it's been a part. But effectively, what it is, is not using the scriptures, including here Psalm 91, as an expression of faith but of presumption. It's coming to God with your demands. Uh, and so once again, Jesus counters, and he says, this isn't a relationship of presumption. We're not to put God to the test. In other words, to put it really simply, the goal here, the idea is that God would be in the driver's seat. There's a proverb, or excuse me, there's a passage in Isaiah where God compares The relationship he has with his people to the relationship a master has with his servant and what he says is just as in a master relationship where a master just needs to direct his eyes catch the servant's attention and then direct his eyes to what needs to be done so also my servant should respond in the same way okay that's the relationship that's the correlation that's once again what we mean as Christians when we say that Jesus is Lord or that God is King and the temptation here uh, is that Jesus would step outside of that and test God. Okay. Now, it's interesting, and at least possible here, uh, that the reason why this takes place in the temple precinct, from the pinnacle of the temple, is, uh, is that there's a second layer to this temptation. Imagine what sort of an announcement it would be if Jesus began his ministry by diving off the temple and not hitting the ground. Imagine if the crowds saw the jumper and then the jumper jumps and angels swoop in and protect him. Do you think he'd have some credentials? Do you think he'd be able to say, well, as you can tell, I'm someone of great significance. In fact, I'm the Messiah. It's an interesting thing that throughout Jesus' ministry, we never see him doing the miraculous for the sake of notoriety. We never see him putting himself out there like a magician would and performing for the people. In fact, often we see the opposite. He sees a blind person in a crowded place and he takes them by the hand and he leads them around the corner away from the crowds. He says to the leper, don't tell anyone, right? He's continuously moving in the opposite direction. In fact, he knows that the notoriety that he can't help but claim is misunderstood notoriety, They don't understand why he's there. It's just bread and circuses to them. It's just a political messiah who's going to wipe out the Romans and set up a throne. They don't understand yet what the prophets have said. But that's maybe part of the temptation here. It's one of notoriety. It's one of uh, demonstrating very quickly who you are. So whereas the first one has to do with his identity personally. Personally. The second one may have to do with his identity in appearances, his reputation. And so Jesus responds, and we get a third temptation in verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now this is bold and bald faced, is it not? This is really the climax, the culmination, the final temptation. But we also need to see this for what it is. Here, as Jesus sees all the kingdoms laid out before him, the devil offers Jesus these things, but remember that that's built into Jesus' destiny. That's where Jesus is headed. All of the prophecies of the Old Testament about the Son of God, about the Son of Man, about the Messiah, he is going to be the one who will not just rule and reign over Israel, but over the whole world, okay? Uh, Psalm 2, why do the nations plot in vain The Lord laughs at them in derision. His anointed one will rule over them with a rod of iron. The temptation here is not something different than Jesus' destiny. It's a shortcut in getting there. Because remember, Jesus has come to die, to be rejected and despised, to suffer, to be scorned, to be spit upon be unjustly put on trial and crucified on a Roman cross and then to bear the full weight of humanity's sin but Jesus just just 30 seconds of bowing before me and I'll give it to you all up front and so Jesus responds here once again quoting out of Deuteronomy then Jesus said to him be gone Satan for it is written you should worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve Now, in Deuteronomy, once again, the context is specifically, as you come into the land, don't forget that God is God. Don't forget that your Lord is the true God. Don't succumb to worshiping the idols of the nations that God is going to drive out before you. But Jesus here quotes it, and he sees it as part of his role, part of his calling, part of his identity. Again, he says, it is written You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now, there's a striking point in that as well. Satan offers Jesus king, kingdom, ruling. Jesus takes the identity of servant, right? He says, I'm not here to rule, I'm here to serve, okay? So I want you to notice here What we see about the way that Jesus uses the Word of God. He finds his self identification, and once again, not just as the Son of God, not just as the Messiah, but his self identification in the context of the covenant, in the the It is Written of Scripture. He finds the path of righteousness and faithfulness and what it looks like to serve God in the It is Written. He defines himself in his relationship to God. He as servant and God as God in thee it is written. And it's worth pointing out that this is not unique to this passage of scripture. We regularly and consistently see Jesus encountering conversations that we as Christians have all the time. And as he does so, this is his most natural impulse. So, when there's a doctrinal disagreement, when there's a theological discussion, when there's a conversation about transcendental uh, or transcendent realities that we don't have access to in experience, specifically when the Sadducees come who don't believe in a resurrection, who don't believe in heaven, and they come up with this hypothetical to make heaven sound ridiculous, a woman who's married seven men in a row and not had children with any of them, which one will be her husband or will they all be her husband in the afterlife? And how does Jesus respond? He says, you err not knowing the scriptures. He says, you would know the truth about these things if you read your Bible. Like we often are, Jesus was faced with the tension of human-made traditions that are tied directly to the religion the practices of Israelites who said, this is what faithfulness looks like. Specifically, it was the Pharisees this time, the religious leaders who had gone to their parents and said, I know that you were expecting me to take care of you in your old age, but whatever I was going to give you, I've made Corbin, a gift to God. I've given it to the temple. So notice what they're saying. They're saying it's much more righteous to give our money to God than it is to take care of our parents. And Jesus says, through your actions, you have made the word of God void and elevated the traditions of men. He challenges where they get it wrong in their worship of God, their tradition of God, their cultural uh, uh, profession of God, with it it is written. In another place, When Jesus' identity is on trial, specifically of being the Son of God, and those who disagree with him are not just challenging that identity, but actually picking up stones to kill him. And he quotes a passage, specifically in the Psalms, and he says, for the word of God cannot be broken. He points to it as being a final authority. He says, you have to reconcile with this. You have to understand this. He speaks in Luke 24 to his disciples and he says foolish are you not to believe all that the prophets have spoken and beginning with Moses and all the prophets he declared the things concerning himself. Over and over again he says have you not read it is written according to the scriptures even when one comes to him and says what must I do to inherit eternal life Jesus he says what does the law say what does the scripture say. What's your reading of it? For Jesus, the scriptures are inherently authoritative. It's where we go for our answers. It's what resolves our disagreements. It's what confronts our traditions and our false understandings. And it's on almost every page of all four gospels. As I suggested earlier, if we're going to identify as those who follow Christ, we should follow him in that understanding that scripture is authoritative. Now, I want to be clear on a couple of things. There are other authorities in our life. Okay? So maybe you're familiar with the Wesleyan Okay, John Wesley pointed to four pieces that make up how we come to know who God is. Scripture was one of them, but he also included tradition, okay? Now, you need to recognize first that you haven't encountered Scripture outside of tradition, okay? This is tradition. That's a baby, an infant baptismal. This is tradition. The church building with its steeple, this is tradition, okay? So much of how you encounter Christianity has to do with this time and this place and the history that precedes it and how we have taken what the Bible says and enculturated it. Now, as a side note, any right and proper Christian tradition should flow from Scripture, okay? There's nothing wrong with tradition, but that's how we would think of these things. They, they stem from, they're built upon, they flow, they're downriver, if you will, from Scripture. But it's true, and it's also a very good thing. How much harder would it be for you to understand the Scriptures and what God wants from you if you just had a bare-naked Bible and no one who'd ever read it before, okay? We have the history of 2,000 years of people reading the scriptures, and that's helpful. It's good. We also have, according to John Wesley, our own experience. And that experience is authoritative. Think back to when you were an infant, when you were just a young child. The primary way you learned how reality worked was through experience. You put the ball in the hole at the top, and it rolls down, and it comes out the other side. You learn object permanence through experience. Children don't know what to do with a ball that's under a hat. It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. But so many times lifting the hat, the reality becomes clear. We learn what's safe and what's dangerous through experience. Okay? We even learn what our parents want before we understand their communication through experience. We know what displeasure looks like. We know what fear looks like before we have the words. Okay? In the same way... A lot of your life is shaped by past experience, by the things you've encountered, by the things you've known, by the things you've learned, okay? And that's also a good thing. How much harder would it be to live if you had to start every day as a blank slate with no impression, no understanding, no history, no memory, okay? Uh, And then he would include, finally, reason. We have the ability as human beings to think rationally to weigh out arguments, to consider logic, to imagine. And so he points to all four of those, okay? And we would agree that all of those have some authority in the Christian life. When we say that the Bible is the final authority, we're not saying that it's the only authority. We are saying that it's the final authority. In other words, it's the one that is the arbiter. It is the Supreme Court. It is the one that has the right and responsibility to confront All of those other things. When we're talking here about the authority of Scripture, we mean that we must bring Scripture to bear on our experience. We must bring it to confront our tradition. We must utilize it to challenge our reason in and of itself. Now, what makes the Bible different? Specifically, it's the fact that our reasoning comes from human beings, our tradition comes from human beings. Our experience is experienced by human beings. And that means that it's both finite and limited and also fallible. But as I said earlier, the authority of the scripture is different because it stems from the sovereignty and the character of God. Now, one of the things that this implies is that what the Bible records is accurate and true. And once again, that idea, what's sometimes referred to as infallibility infallibi- or even the inerrancy of Scripture, is drawn from the character of God. Here's the logical explanation. Okay? God has revealed himself in Scripture. Scripture is his divine revelation, as we saw in our first week. And God cannot lie. God does not deceive. Okay? Now recently, in about the last hundred years... That's come tremendously under attack, not from outside the church. It should be completely understandable when we say we believe this book was authored by God himself, that the world responds to that with skepticism, okay? We don't just believe that because it says it. There's a larger process in that. We've encountered Jesus. We've been transformed by it, okay? Um, The word isn't just authoritative in description. It's authoritative in encounter. Okay, we've encountered the word of God. These, these things all matter. Okay? Um, but even within the church, some have started to redefine this and asked, basically, if we can maintain the value of the scriptures and eject or reject the reality of its final authority. Okay? One of the most popular and current expressions of this comes from a theologian by the name of Peter Enns. Peter Enns wrote two books that you may have heard of. One is The Bible Tells Me So. Uh, and the other is Inspiration and Incarnation. And actually, although there are two books, they're basically the same book. Uh, one was written much earlier and was written uh, in a very different format, which is a little bit more scholastic, which is much more likely to engage with sources and things like that, and which was written uh, not just to people like you and I in the church, but also knowing that other theologians and his peers would be listening in the Bible tells me so is a very uh, easy-to-read 125-page paperback written to Christians. But this is basically what he suggests, that about 150 years ago, we started to realize how much of the Bible was tremendously human, okay? So, for example... Things that he points to are the fact that we have this record of a flood, a worldwide flood, the story of Noah in the book of Genesis, and that's not the only place we find such a story. In fact, even from the Babylonians, which is close quarters to Israel, uh, we have the Enuma Elish, or the story of Gilgamesh, which also speaks of a worldwide flood, and a single person in a boat, and all of those details. We have, for example, the code of Hammurabi, which has a good deal in common with the laws of Israel. He looks forward and he says the way that the New Testament authors handle the Old Testament seems a lot like the Jews in the first century who weren't Christians handled the Old Testament. Uh, He looks at many different features, and this is where his title comes from, from the longer book, uh, Inspiration and Incarnation. And if you're going to read one, read that one. I don't know what else to call the other one but frustrating and irresponsible. Okay, Um, But... Inspiration and incarnation, it's more thorough, uh, it's more thoughtful, it's not so aggressive, and it doesn't do such a poor job of representing other opinions, okay? Um, But in it, he suggests that we need to think of the Bible in the same way that we think of the incarnation of Jesus. And so Jesus was fully God, enfleshed in true humanity. And he suggests that many Christians have made uh, the mistake of doeticism which is an ancient heresy that basically said, Jesus wasn't actually human, he just looked it. It was just the appearance of humanity, but he was really God looking like a human. And that was rightly and properly rejected by the early church, side note, rejected because of what the Bible says, okay? But what he suggests is that we make the same mistake today. We see the Bible and and we we know it has human authors, but we, we just think it merely has the appearance of that humanity and that it's not got a full... Humanity. Because of that, where he ends up going is basically saying um, that all of these things can easily be set and set aside and rejected because they are the fallible, enculturated thoughts and opinions, and words of people who truly did encounter God. Okay? And so they come enfleshed with all the compromise that we experience in our own life, with all the limitations of perspective. Okay? Now I want to challenge that on a couple of different levels, okay? To, to honestly and fairly respond to his book, and this is what's so frustrating about it, it would take thousands of pages or hundreds of hours. He is so fast in moving through material, okay? Um, and in doing so, he presents kind of this, this version of Christianity and the scriptures that I literally don't know anyone who holds as being the other position, it's it's a little bit of a straw man, and so when he, he lays that out uh, um, and then responds to it, he ignores a couple of things, and this is my first critique. Okay, um, for example, now most of you know me. I'm no I'm no scholar. I don't even have a a master's in theology, nor have I written any papers. I'm I'm not fluent in Greek or in ancient Hebrew. Okay, but I am a reader. However. There's not a single thing that he brings up in his book that he finds compromising that I wasn't already familiar with. Not one. None of it surprised me, okay? On top of that, every one of them are things that I have watched and learned as evangelical Christians who hold a very different view of the scriptures than Peter Enns does, engage with those things directly and respond to it in a way that I actually think makes a lot more sense than Enns' conclusions. But he doesn't present that. He acts as if all that's happened is that it's been ignored by people who hold a high view of scripture and that they haven't truly engaged with the reality of scripture. That's complaint number one. Complaint number two, okay. His, his paperback, you know, his really accessible work is called The Bible Tells Me So. And he basically says, we haven't been treating the Bible like it says we should treat it. That's his tagline. I, I read the Bible this way because the Bible tells me so. But he he misses what I think is the most important way to read that statement, the Bible tells me so, which is that he never once engages with what the Bible says about itself. He doesn't talk about when Paul says that all scripture is divinely inspired. He doesn't talk about how many times in the Old Testament the prophets say, uh, you know, um, uh, Wow. That's such a repeated refrain, why can't I remember it? The prophets always introduce their messages with, thus says the Lord. He doesn't talk about when First Peter says that all, all prophets didn't give their own interpretation, but as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, I'm saying that our understanding of Scripture, we can say, why do we believe this? Because the Bible tells me so. And that's no small thing. What he's experiencing is some phenomenons of the encounter between what the Bible says and what it appears to be and these other realities outside of the scripture. Science, archaeology, history, other cultural experiences, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and these types of things. And the only way he can reconcile that is to reduce the divinity of the scriptures, Okay. and so he challenges us and, and what he says at the end is the Bible still the word of God it's just not infallible it's just not inerrant actually he never says those things but he clearly means it it's just not authoritative it needs to be um, seen for what it is and handled in a way that it is valuable in our relationship with God but not, not these other things uh, but when he says I still believe it's the word of God and when he says I still believe it's inspired he never explains what he means and this is the third thing, and this is a little bit more pragmatic. My biggest problem with Peter N's view, and the reason why I'm harping on this is because he underlies a lot of common and popular conversations about what the Bible is right now. Okay? If you listen to the Liturgist podcast, their entire view of scripture is shaped by these books. Okay? He has a lot of influence right now. Um, but the third problem I have with this is that he doesn't present us a right and proper, uh, a way to engage with scripture, a way to understand who God is or what he wants, a way to come to theological conclusions. He just dismantles a way and leave it, leaves it at that. His, uh, what he gives you is relief. He takes the hard things in scripture, the places where we might disagree with what the Bible says, or the places where, as far as we can tell, it seems like the Bible contradicts itself. It takes the hard things in scripture that we wonder, did this really happen? These types of things, and it alleviates all of that pressure. But in doing so, it loses the ability for the Bible to bring anything of value to the table anymore. Because what happens if the Bible is only authoritative in certain places? If it's only true in certain places, how do we know which of those places? We have to turn to another authority. You see, there are suggestions in, in today, uh, today's conversations about Christianity that the Bible doesn't need to be inerrant or infallible to be authoritative, that it can still work as the word of God without those things, but the Catholic Church has known better for thousands of years. The Catholic Church suggested, no, it's not just the Bible that's authoritative. We have two things, the Bible and the verbal transition handed down, or tradition handed down in the authority of the church, and we need both. And in doing so, very quickly they realized, oh shoot, this doesn't work. And so they indoctrinated this idea of a single infallible interpreter, the Pope, okay? Because they needed a final court of appeal. They needed an authoritative place. This is why progressive Christians or liberal Christianity is tremendously diverse in its beliefs because they have no unified ground on how to come to those beliefs. And so some of them reject the Trinity and some still hold it. Some of them reject the bodily resurrection of Jesus and some still hold it. Some of them come to these conclusions on ethics and others come to these. And there's no place for them to come to agreement because other authorities are shaping their opinions and they're not agreed upon. In fact, unfortunately, if the Bible is not the final authority, ultimately the authority over the Bible becomes us. Now, we're not dealing with if we should give the Bible this authority, but as I suggested earlier in this conversation, Jesus did. Okay? And sometimes Jesus is presented as this judge over the Scriptures, but that's not what we see in Scripture. And we have no access to any other Jesus, any non-Bible Jesus that handles things a different way. And so, what I'm suggesting to you tonight... Um, is that that the authority of Scripture is not just a doctrine of the Bible, and it's not just a belief that Jesus held. It's an essential one. Because just as we see with Jesus and his is, is, it is written, it maintains the relationship between creator and creation. It leaves us dependent upon God. It leaves it with him calling the shots. Either you allow the Bible as God's word to shape you, or you will shape it. Either you will be conformed to the word of God or you will conform the word of God to your own self and to your own standards. And we need to recognize the cost that comes with that. If the Bible is not authoritative, if it doesn't speak as the word of God, then it can no longer confront us and call us to change. And that's not just true of our own selves, although it is convenient that those who hold these doctrines of Scripture usually don't have uh, a lot of change that's necessary. Conversion to Christianity is no longer needed. Uh, Confronting the culture on particular issues is no longer necessary because these are things that God embraces. But also, they lose the ability to handle the prophetic witness of Scripture in confrontation and stand against the powers that be and challenge governments and other authorities and institutions to stand against injustice and call it what it is. If the word of God is God's word and therefore authoritative, then with consequence we can speak it as the prophets have always done. Not only that, but if we lose the authority of the scripture, then we lose the assurance of God's promises. The Bible is full of great and precious promises, and it calls us to a life where we need those. It sends us out into the fray, like Psalm 91, to the front lines of the battle, and says, but God will be there. He will be present. It calls us to live sacrificially below our means to put ourselves in the line of danger Uh, to follow in the way of Jesus who was crucified on behalf of others, all of these things, to offer forgiveness when it's not safe to do so, all of these things. And the only reason that makes sense is because God lays out these promises and says, I will be present with you when you do it. I will empower you for it. I will take you through it. And at the end of the road, eternal life, reward, redemption. But if the Bible isn't what it claims to be, if it's not authoritative then we don't know if those promises are promises. We don't know if they're God's promises. We can't stand on them in confidence. We can't hold them against the fray. We can't stand in the darkness and be able to stand and wait till morning because we know the sun is coming. It all becomes questionable. And if we deny the authority of Scripture, then it loses its power to save. As we'll see next week, the Bible is not just authoritative, it's powerful. It does something. When we encounter the word of God, it changes us. In the same way that in Genesis, God speaks into the darkness and suddenly light was because God said, let there be light. The Bible maintains that that's what it does in our life. When Jesus talks about the word of God, he compares it to a seed. It's not a rock. It doesn't just sit there. It grows. It flourishes. It brings fruit in our life. It does stuff but not if it's not God's word. You see, here's the tension, and it really can't be gotten around for Peter Enns and people like him. The human enculturation of the Bible stems from the fact that even if God used it, it's merely a human book. But for us, the human enculturation of the Bible comes from the purpose of God because he desires to be known and understood. And so like we talked about last week with the clarity of scripture, he says things in a language that is human through through an enculturated book, and people who live in that culture, not because he didn't have any other options, but because he actually wants to convey something, so that he actually wants to say something. And that's, once again, I, I said I was only going to give three critiques, but but in a broad sense, that comes up in every exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C of Peter N's book. Every time I've found going, yeah, but doesn't it also make sense, you know, that... Uh, that these ways don't just engage the culture, but challenge the culture? That they rightly communicate these things? Is it really that problematic? Uh, for example, that there's, there's a flood story in the Old Testament, uh, when it may be that we find them all over the world, not just in the ancient Near East, but literally we have 70, 70 people groups who have flood stories of a universal flood. Could it be that they're all talking about something that's actually historical? And the Bible presents the true happening of that. Okay. Um, that's not on the table. Uh, when, and this is, this is a frustration I have too, one of the places that I call foul is he holds up the laws that's given in Exodus and the law that's given in Deuteronomy. And he says, look at this law in Exodus and this one in Deuteronomy. Don't you see how they contradict each other? They were clearly written by different people at different times. But if you read them in the context of the story, the law of Exodus is for the people of Israel in the wilderness. The law of Deuteronomy is for the people as they move into the land. They're going to be landowners. There's not gonna be a tabernacle in the middle of the camp. There's gonna be Jerusalem, the place where God chooses. And so yes, the sacrificial system changes. Yes, the, w- the laws change because the circumstances change. But there's a consistency to that. There's a built-in bibli- uh, biblicity of that. It fits in the context of the whole of what Scripture is. So here's the thing for us. First off, just so you know, just in case you ever come back, just in case you call this church home, I have no authority. Not final authority. Anything that I speak is true. I speak because the Scripture says so. And like the faithful Bereans in the book of Acts, when I'm wrong, I should be confronted with the truths of Scripture, and I, I get it wrong. I'm a human being. My mind is being renewed. I'm being conformed into the image of Christ. The Bible is a significantly uh, large book to master, and, um, and we should regularly be engaged in this. Um, and, and so, um, side note, that's tremendously freeing for me. My goal up here is not, here's what you should do with your life. It's thus says the Lord. Okay. Um, but, But also for each of us as individuals, you have to ask the question, what is the final authority in your life? How do you sort your experiences? How do you determine good reasoning and bad reasoning? How do you shape who God is and what he wants from you? What do you do when you disagree with scripture? What do you do when you don't understand? I want to be very clear here. If the Bible is authoritative, then it is right and proper to wrestle with it. But the aspiration, the desire should be that Scripture wins. Okay, I'm not suggesting to you some sort of blind sheep following. In fact, when we do that as a church, what happens? We lose what the Scripture teaches, and we replace it with these you know, false embodiments of it, these traditions of men, these misunderstandings, okay? We need to be regularly and consistently confronted with the truth, and that's what makes the Bible important. That's what makes it significant. Um, But the way that we wrestle in Scripture is different, okay? It assumes we are the ones in error. It assumes that we don't have all the facts. It sees contradictions as apparent contradictions and goes, maybe I should keep reading, it stands in a posture that says, you are God in heaven, and here I am on earth. And the value of this, once again, is that what we're trying to do as we follow Jesus is to build a life. And I, I was thinking this morning of, uh, of a metallurgist, of a, some, somebody who builds something out of metal. And a significantly important thing for that to work is that the hammer and the anvil have to be made of stronger stuff than the thing you're trying to shape the authority of the word of God means that we can actually grow in the truth, means that we can actually grow to be more as God designed us to be, to be more in tune with the identity that he's given us. It's good news, but it is news that puts us in our place. It is news that this is God's word uh, and we are shaped by it and do not shape it. Let's pray. Father, I know personally what it's like to wrestle with your word, to not understand, to find myself in the shoes of the disciples who hear you say a hard word and say, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. I pray that you would produce that posture in us, Lord, that we would not put ourselves above your word as judges of what is and what isn't, what's true and what's right, what's good and what's bad, but that we would give the scriptures a chance to speak authoritatively in our life, to challenge us, to reform us, to show us where we've been deceived, to counter our misunderstandings and to make us more like Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that the authority of this word means that we can proclaim in confidence that Jesus was sent by God, to live the life we could not live, to die the death that we deserve, and raised from the dead by the power of God so that we also might have life freely by trusting in Him and receiving the forgiveness that God offers in His blood. And that is something we can build on. That is something that brings peace and joy and purpose. And most importantly, that is something that reunites us with the God who made us and who loves us and who has amazing plans for us. So I pray, Lord, that we would lean into this and that where we do have problems, we wouldn't try and take the shortcut of just cutting them out of Scripture, but that we'd wrestle with them, that we'd work to be diligent students that rightly divide the word of truth like Paul called Timothy to be, that we would give you time to shape us instead of us being quick to shape you help us with this in jesus name amen all right you spoke a lot about how the bible's authority and clarity affect our ability to rely on its promises what if similarly to how we are not promised security or peace in this life we are also not promised clarity in life regarding the scriptures I'm asking because I don't want to become disillusioned by looking for a level of clarity that the Bible doesn't promise. Do you think passages like Hebrews 4.12 include the clarity regarding God's promises or just clarity regarding conviction? Sorry if this doesn't make sense. Okay, um, so in this, there's a couple of different questions, but they, they all kind of stem from the the same place, and I really appreciate um, the the... Uh, the fear here, which is not wanting to become disillusioned by looking for a level of clarity that the Bible doesn't promise, okay? Now, the first thing we should notice is uh, when it mentions uh, if we're in the same way that we're not promised security or peace in this life, we're also not promised clarity in this life regarding the scriptures, we should just lay out the difference between those two things. How do we know that we're not promised peace or, uh, peace or um, security in this life? because the Scriptures make that clear. Okay. Um, Now, that's not enough to say, therefore, Scriptures must be clear, but there isn't a similar place where the Scriptures set these types of limitations on its clarity. In fact, as we saw last week, there are good reasons to believe that the Bible points to its own clarity. However, that uh, that doesn't mean we can't make tremendous mistakes on what we mean when we say that the Scriptures are clear. So let's just review a few of those from last week. First off, when we say the scriptures are clear, uh, we don't mean that on the first reading, for any person of any intelligence, uh, that the Bible's message is always perfectly conveyed, fully and truthfully. Okay, what we mean in the clarity of scripture is because God has condescended to use human language, and human grammar, and human culture, that we actually can come to discover and discern what God actually meant. In the same way that I can say right now, my speech is clear. Now you may not be a native English speaker and that would be a hindrance to that clarity, okay? But you can learn the English language and grow to understand what I'm saying. Second, when we say that scripture is clear, we don't mean that it is exhaustively knowable in this life, okay? Um, In other words, knowing that God has clearly spoken in Scripture is not the same thing as recognizing um, that we can know everything God said exhaustively. But that doesn't mean we can't know it truly, okay? Um, I remember a, uh, a math conundrum that was put to me as a kid by some math teacher where a frog was, um, was swimming across a pond of six feet wide, and in the first stroke, he swum, swung half the pond, and then the second stroke, he swung half, swum half that distance, and then half and half and half and half. And the question was, how many times would the frog swim to get to the other side? And if we're dealing with strict math, the answer is never. Because every, play, every time, he only cuts the, the remaining distance in half. Okay, And so those numbers get infinitesimally small, ironically much smaller than a that a frog's own body length or observable distance, but, but there's diminishing returns, and so the frog never arrives. But he does get a whole lot closer. And to some degree, eventually he gets close enough that there, there is a true, you can say he's gotten to the other side, okay? Um, it's, it's at the molecular level that he hasn't arrived yet, right? In the same way, when we talk about the clarity of scripture, what we're recognizing is that by engaging with the normal tools of understanding, of language, of study, of interpretation, and these types of things, that we can grow in our understanding of scripture and therefore God to the degree that we're getting closer and closer, okay? Even though we will never exhaust it, nor does clarity mean, and this is point three, um, that everything we'd ever want to know or that God in and of himself is exhaustively knowable in scripture. How do I know that? Because the Bible maintains a good deal of mystery in God. That's part of the clarity of scripture. God's transcendence. Uh, transcendence just means if you were to um, hypothetically or philosophically try and draw a, a box around God, he would always be more than that. Okay? You can't contain all that God is descriptively. Because as Isaiah says, he's God in heaven. Uh, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts, okay? But once again, that we can't know God exhaustively or know everything about God doesn't mean we can't know him truly, okay? In the same way that we would all say that we can know one another truly, although not exhaustively, Right? Um, and so I think when we keep these things in mind, it does do a good job of keeping us from being uh, disillusioned for a level of clarity. To put it in the words of Paul, now we know in part. We see in a mirror dimly, but then we will know just as we're known because we will see him face to face. That is part of the life we live in, and that includes a life with Scripture. Okay? But that doesn't mean that we can't know God truly. All right, another one here. Our adherence to Scripture is only as good as our interpretation of it, and there are always differing interpretations. How can we be sure that we interpret Scripture correctly? Now, last week we talked about the fact that although there are differing interpretations of some things, church history over the course of 2,000 years shows a tremendous amount of unity on the most important things, okay? It's why almost every church Almost every church standing today that identifies as Christian, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant, liberal mainline, uh, almost all of them hold to the creeds, okay? The big we believes, um, those are unified. Uh, Second, most of the time, where we differ is not on interpretations, but on implications, okay? So like we talked about last week, uh, the Bible talks about baptism, And for some people, uh, that baptism is only appropriate for adults, because clearly baptism is something you do after you believe in Jesus, and a baby can't come to belief in themselves. However, others look at many passages in in Scripture, specifically the sign of circumcision in the Old Testament, and they say, but the children really are a part of the church in a significant way. And although the baby was circumcised, he was a part of Israel, even though he didn't have personal faith in the God of Israel. Both of those are decent arguments. Okay, but, but the Bible does not address infant baptism. That's why it's not clear, because it's not part of Scripture. Those are drawing inferences and implications. A good deal of the disagreement we have in Christians, as Christians, has to do with those issues, okay? With building on top of what Scripture clearly says and trying to put it together. With enculturating what Scripture says and applying it to our time and our circumstances and our culture. Um, however, I do want to address the second part. How can we be sure to interpret Scripture correct, correctly? Let's recognize that it is absolutely possible, possible to interpret Scripture poorly. Okay. Recognizing the clarity of Scripture doesn't mean that everybody handles it well or that we can't suggest that one interpretation is better than another. But there are some things we can do to grow as uh, interpreters that are actually pretty accessible. Okay. The first is recognize that God decided to reveal Himself in Scripture, which means in writing. Okay? And so the better you become a reader of books, the better you recognize the bookishness of the Bible, the better you'll interpret it. Okay. Most of the tools that I use every week in prepping for a sermon, I could also use um, in studying the works of Shakespeare or a novel. Um, by Franz Kafka or, or the like um, it 's things like this, okay and this is I would say the number one thing. If we make a mistake as Christians reading scripture it 's that we don 't pay enough attention to authorial intent. okay And so we see stuff in the scripture and we ask what it means. but we need to ask first and more primarily primarily what is the author trying to say and how do I know that 's what he 's trying to say? Any interpretation we present of the Bible shouldn't just be something that sounds good or preaches or brings solid application or even represents the truth of Scripture because we're totally capable of saying true things that aren't said here, okay? Uh, What we need to do is present evidence for our understanding. In other words, if you tell me what a passage means, I want to know how you came to that conclusion. And some of that evidence is going to be things like grammar. Some of it's going to be context. You saw me do it tonight when I said, how should we understand the temptation of Jesus? And we saw that there was a lot of verbal and intentional overlap and a lot of reference to the Garden of Eden and to Israel in Deuteronomy, right? Um, Those inferences were based on context, the context of the whole story the Bible tells. So, for example... Those who coined the idea of the clarity of Scripture in the Reformation, they maintained that even the most obscure parts of Scripture, the things that it teaches, are clear somewhere else in Scripture. And they suggested that the best way to understand the obscure is to interpret it in the light of what is clear and not the other way around. In other words, if you take something that's strange and hard to understand in Scripture and you use that to twist the things that seem obvious, that'd be moving in the wrong direction. But that ultimately comes down to authorial intent. What is the author trying to say? How do I know that's what he's trying to say? You do this instinctually every time you have a conversation, every time you read a book. The problem is many of us approach the Bible like a sanctified Ouija board. And so we just open it and want it just, just the sentence we read first to speak to us, okay? Now, as I've said before, God can speak through a donkey, but that doesn't mean you should go to a barn and sit in front of an ass and say, okay, God, what do you want to say? And so I'm not suggesting that when God has spoken to you through encounters like that in your Bible study, he hasn't done so. God desires to be understood. But if you want to grow in your ability to understand him, move away from that and start to read the Bible as it was written uh, and read it a lot, okay? Um, Let me add one other thing. Read it together. The other mistake that interpreters make is is feeling like an interpretation is only true or honest if I didn't have any help. The Bible is not a math test, okay? It's made to be understood in community and your your ignorances are not my ignorances. Your particular pretensions to sin are not mine. We are all fallen, but we're uniquely fallen. And so when we read the scriptures together, uh, not all of us can see around the same corners, but collectively we grow in our understanding. That's what's so sweet about where we are in church history right now, is Christianity is now being lived out in a diverse amount of cultures and perspectives, and it is correcting some of the most uh, longstanding Western mistakes, because we're seeing it from other places, okay, which is a very good thing. So read it together would be my second suggestion and that means with the living as well as with the dead read more books written by dead christians please okay how did matthew and luke know what the dialogue was between jesus and satan in the desert did jesus tell them okay first off with luke the answer is probably no okay as far as we can tell uh, luke especially considering his name is not jewish in background Uh, and did not come to understand Christianity until after the ascension of Jesus under the preaching of Paul, okay? So he probably never met Jesus during Jesus's days on earth. He does tell us in his introduction, though, that what he's presented in the Gospels is an orderly account of eyewitness testimony. In fact, this is one of the things that I think is fascinating about the Gospel of Luke, is in the Gospel of Matthew, the Christmas story is mostly about Joseph Okay. Joseph finds out Mary is pregnant. Joseph is trying to figure out what to do. An angel comes to Joseph. Joseph moves them to Egypt. But in Luke, it focuses on Mary. And in one place, it even says, the words that the angel spoke, Mary pondered in her heart. That's not accessible, written on the face information, is it? That's personal testimony if we read Luke in a way that makes sense for what he claims it to be, he sat down with Mary and said, tell me what it was like, okay? And his book is made up of these incredibly personal testimonies. Another side note, this is why I believe the Bible is what it declares itself to be. The vocabulary in Luke is much more diverse because his sources are more diverse because he's like a journalistic investigator and he sits down and says, tell me the story and he writes it down. Um, But all of that to say, um, with, with Matthew, if Matthew is the author of the Gospel of Matthew, which, remember, the Gospel itself doesn't say, but that's been the tradition, and I would suggest to you it's not true because it's tradition, but it's probably traditional because it's true. Um, but uh, Matthew is one of Jesus' disciples who spent three years with Jesus, listening to Jesus, and especially important is that after Jesus is resurrected... I think it's even Matthew who tells us he spent intentional time with the disciples appearing on many occasions, rightly instructing them in everything, okay? preparing them for what was to happen. And so, although the scripture doesn't give us an origin story for this particular pericope, this little section of Matthew's gospel, that is a very natural and likely conclusion to come to. Okay? The gospel was not written... Um, by, uh, by eyewitnesses who were there every day. It was written by people who collected all of these things, um, you know, and supplemented their own understanding with the stories of others. Uh, just another side note, Mark doesn't have a temptation narrative. Uh, he might, I don't remember now. But either way, uh, Mark's, Mark's gospel is clearly a codification of the preaching of Peter and I won't walk you through that whole thing, but we can see that basically the best way to understand the gospel of Mark is that Peter is dying, and the church he's been preaching to in Rome, Mark goes, we should write down everything you've ever said, and he puts it together so that although Peter, the apostle, will be absent, the apostolic witness of Peter will be continued, okay, Uh, which brings us to the next question, and it's a good one. I wonder about the letters to the churches found in the New Testament being put on the same level and given the same weight as the Old Testament. How would Paul feel knowing that his letters to the churches are analyzed, studied, and preached today with the same, if not more, intensity than the Old Testament? Would churches of the Apostles' day be okay with spending a whole service time or longer on Paul or other letters accounts in the New Testament over the Old Testament? Okay, first off, just a little bit of history. Even some non-Christian historians tell us that yes, in the generations just after Jesus, they did sometimes read aloud the writings of the apostles in the same way that they would read the Old Testament. Okay, that's, that's a historical fact by those who were observing Christianity. But more importantly, we can see earmarks of the New Testament understanding itself, the writings of the gospels, the epistles, and the book of Revelation, and the book of Acts, um, as being scripture. Now, last week, we actually talked about this and how um, Peter not only sees all scripture being of divine spirit-empowered origin, but at the end of the book, refers to Paul's letters specifically and says that some people twist them to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And so Peter just lays it out and he says the letters of Paul are scripture, okay? Um, In the same way, Paul engages with the gospel of Luke. And so he says in, um, in one of his letters to Timothy, for scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain and a laborer is worthy of his wages. The first one comes from Deuteronomy. The second one is the words of Jesus only found in Luke's gospel, okay? But I also wanted to point, to you, uh, point out to you in Paul's own understanding of his own writings, as well as Peter's own understanding of his own writings, we can see this going on. And I just want to point you to a couple of places. I'll give you homework as well. If you want to ponder this, read First and 2 Thessalonians and see how he engages with his own ministry to Thessalonica. And there's a couple of places where you'll see similar things that I want to show you tonight. But what I want to show you specifically is in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul here is writing to a church in Ephesus, um, And this is what he says. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Okay. And so what is he saying here? He says, what I'm about to tell you, as you already know, is something that was unknown in the Old Testament that God revealed to me personally. And then what I want you to notice is what he says next. He says, verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. And then he goes on. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Okay, he makes a connection between God's revelation specifically to Paul and the writing that we know as Ephesians as he's writing it. In other words, although there's a distinction between the writings of an apostle and the, the message of the apostle, it seems, according to the New Testament, there's, there's a commonality in those things that they're seen together. If you read 1 and 2 Thessalonians, you'll see the same point. Paul says, as we have said in word and in letters. Okay, he connects the two. Okay. Um, and so here, Paul says that in, in Ephesians chapter 3, Um, But he also says, let's see if I can uh, find this, Ephesians 2. Mm -hmm -hmm. Sorry, I meant to look this one up and I didn't. In chapter 2, verse 20, or sorry, verse 19, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Okay. now most likely he's connecting the dots between the Old and the New Testament. He says the foundation of the church is the word of God given to the prophets and the apostles of which Paul self-identifies as one. It's right after this that he goes into chapter three and he talks about the mystery that God has revealed to me that I've spoken to you. Okay. In the same way, Peter, in Second Peter chapter 3, he opens chapter 3 this way. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day. And so here he looks at the writing and he says, in tune with the words of the prophets and the apostles of which Peter identifies, Um, and, and he identifies it here. Uh, and then, as I said earlier, those prophets in chapter one, he says, didn't write of individual interpretation, but as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then at the end of chapter three is when he refers to Paul's letters as scripture, okay? And so across Second Peter, as he deals with the word of God, which is what Second Peter is all about, he connects the dots, never explicitly but inherently, almost almost um, assumes this reality and speaks from it instead of speaks about it. Um, but I would suggest to you that Paul and Peter and James and John uh, understood what the authority God had given them and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit promised in the upper room discourse of the Gospel of John meant and lived and spoke and even wrote from that position and posture. Uh, and even in the days of the New Testament, we see churches finding the letters that were written by the apostles to other churches as being valuable in their day. In fact, in Colossians, Paul says, make sure you also read the letter that I sent to the Laodiceans, okay, to the church in Colossae, okay? So in other words, as we talked about a long time ago, uh, what makes the... uh, What makes the New Testament epistles scripture is that they are expressions of apostolic authority, which Jesus had appointed them to be filled with the Spirit and to speak on his behalf. Um, And once again, the upper room discourse talks about that. So does First Corinthians chapter two. All right. Let me hit the reload button and see if we've got anything else in the queue here. All right. how should we handle talking about theology with other people who claim to be Christian but who use the Message Bible as their main reader? Um, first off, we need to recognize that although the distance between uh, the Message and a translation like the New King James or the NASB or the ESV is important, okay, uh, the Message is a paraphrase that's trying to draw out in an artistic way the Message of Scripture. Okay? Uh, second, it's done by a single person, okay, whereas usually uh, translation historically has been done by a group of people. Uh, just by way of illustration, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is called that because it was traditionally understood to be done by 70 people. That's where septa comes from, okay? Um, and so those differences are significant, okay? And the problem with a paraphrase or even a thought-for-thought interpretation or a translation of the Bible like the NIV or the NET. uh, The problem with that is you get further away from the original language. It's less accessible. That doesn't mean it's not more accurate, okay? When you read in the King James bowels of compassion, that is the best literal translation of what the Hebrew says, but that doesn't convey any meaning to us because we don't think of compassion coming from the gut. We think of it coming from the heart, okay? And so the New King James, the NASB, the ESV rightly says, filled with compassion. That's not inaccurate. It's just closer to the receptor language than the original language, okay, for the sake of clarity. Um, so the, the message then, we need to recognize that the distance between the message and the ESV is not as great as the distance between the original language text and English, okay. Um, but the, the problem with the message being your primary Bible is, like I said, you're getting it through the lens of a single interpreter who is intentionally playing with the text, and I don't mean that in a negative or a critical way, but trying to draw out beauty and sometimes preach, okay, um, and so it's really valuable and instructional, um, but, uh, but it's very difficult to study from, uh, because you're getting it like pre-chewed food, if you will. It's a little bit more digested. It's been cooked and presented as a meal, and that's good and it's valuable, but not when you're trying to cook, okay? Unless you're a Midwesterner, and then I know everything you start with was something else, uh, like Rice Krispie Treats. Um, uh, so, so here's the thing, um, and this is such a bad illustration because there's a total difference between people who love the message and the cults. But... Uh, um, Walter Martin uh, loved to speak to, to Jehovah's Witnesses using their inherently biased and flawed translation of the Bible. Okay. He knew that it was done in a way that misconstrued what the Bible said to reinforce what Jehovah's Witnesses believed, but it's a big Bible and you can't do that well everywhere. And so he would use their own scriptures so that he didn't have to worry about the trapdoor okay? The message is a, trans- or a, a paraphrase of God's Word and therefore has a lot of truth in it, and it's not been lost in translation. And so it can be a place to engage with, and there's no reason why you can't read the message with someone else and be nourished by what the Word of God is. Um, and so, so in one direction, I would suggest that's a way to lean. In the other direction, it can be a both-hand thing. I don't see why you can't have a conversation with two Bibles open Uh, That's also something I do as a student of the Bible, okay? Um, The ESV is what I primarily teach out of, but my brain is full of the New King James, and I also love and read every week the NET translation, okay? Okay, slow pitch, but the NET is a newer translation, um, and what makes it so valuable is that it's thought for thought, not word for word. The goal is to be closer to our language, uh, but the value of it is that it has 60,000 translator notes included in the footnotes. So it's like a readable Bible with an open hood, and you can see what's going on underneath, and I love it, okay? In fact, a lot of times if there's a, a verse that's difficult to translate, I'll find the best articulation of both sides of the argument and a good convincing argument for why they went the way they went just right there in the footnotes instead of delving through commentaries. Um, but, but those are the things that I would suggest. I believe these two go together let's see if it makes sense now there we go in regards to something like the creation story or, re- or revelation can you speak about the difference between scriptures being inerrant and infallible and the scriptures scriptures being literal okay what's important to keep in mind here is the idea of literary genre okay when Jesus tells a parable it's not errant or untrue because it didn't actually happen right it's supposed to be a parable and so we interpret it as a parable Okay, one of the bad ways to handle scripture we call allegorical interpretation. That's where everything in the Bible becomes symbolic, and, uh, and it ignores the history of what happened, it ignores the author's point that he's trying to make, it just uses the scripture to say something else. However, if you're reading John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, you should absolutely read it as an allegory. In doing so, since he wrote it as one, you're reading it literally okay? Or maybe if it's helpful, because sometimes literal means uh, in our day and age, wooden, where we don't even understand metaphors or things like that. So literally, if it's helpful to you, okay? When we talk about reading these things, we need to read it in the context of its literature, okay? And so what that means for the book of Revelation is that it is apocryphal, okay? Oops, excuse me. Apocalyptic. There we go. Uh, it is apocalyptic in nature. That's its genre. And so Some people suggest we should turn to the books that were written um, 400 years before Jesus up to 100 years after of Jesus that are also apocalypses, okay? They're not biblical. They're often written by Jews and sometimes a couple of sects around Judaism, and they have a lot in common with the book of Revelation and so what they suggest is these groups didn't understand this as having any sort of prophetic or historical it was just a moral allegory and so we should read Revelation in the same way. I would say that was a good case to make except we have other apocalypse literature in the Bible specifically in Ezekiel, Zechariah, and in Daniel and the unique thing about Daniel is that his apocalyptic visions are uh, to us past fulfilled. And so we can look at how Daniel, as a writer of Scripture, meant his apocalyptic vision to be understood, and he had a significant correlation between historical happenings and the symbols. Okay. So in other words, I'm saying that when we read Revelation as being actually about a future, although written in figurative language, in apocalyptic literature, uh, we're, we're just following in the footsteps of how we read Daniel. Um, but... Uh, but that does make room for recognizing these things. And like I suggested last week, the Book of Job may be about historical people, but is not conveyed as history. It doesn't read like First Kings, okay? Every uh, character in Job waxes dramatically and eloquently. It has more to do with, um, uh, with Henry VIII by Shakespeare, than it does a biography on Henry VIII, okay? Uh, And so uh, if we say this is not straight history, we're once again reading that book literally. If you do that with the gospel, you're doing something very different, okay? You're not leaning into the literary style, you're ignoring it, okay? When, When Luke says, I've given you an orderly account of eyewitness testimony and you say these things didn't happen, that's not reading the Bible in a better way that's denying what it, what it presents itself to be, okay? Those questions are still significant, but we need to notice the difference. When it comes to Genesis, specifically the creation narrative, there is a major difference between the writing of Genesis 1, 2, uh, and what follows, okay? Uh, it, it just is different. In fact, we can't, in a, in a sense, and I hope you all understand why I say this, call it history. We have to call it prehistory. It doesn't mean it's not historical, but it is by nature a different thing. Uh, most of history is provided to us, including in the Bible, how? Eyewitness testimony. Is Genesis 1 and 2 eyewitness? It can't be, okay? That doesn't mean it didn't happen, okay? It means that it's nuanced, it's different, it's involved, and so there are room for having these conversations, and what I'm suggesting to you tonight is the way to have them uh, is to look, once again, for authorial intent. Okay. Where I'm not comfortable is, well, Moses believed this is how the world was created, but that's not what happened. Okay. If he's conveying it to be understood as something less than a scientific account, then many um, interpreters of scripture have made that case, and some of them in pretty significantly compelling ways. I'm not sold, okay. because the hardest part is after, after Genesis 1 and 2, you have Genesis 3. And then after Genesis 3, you have a worldwide flood and the Tower of Babel. At what point do we start to go, ah, now we've gotten to real history and why? And a lot of people who say the early chapters of Genesis are merely poetry can't actually define the difference between those two things. And so I would suggest that most of the time, what they're looking for is not what the Bible seems to mean, but what we're comfortable believing the Bible says. And that's not good enough for me. All right, I'm going to hit refresh one more time, but I think we might have come to the end. Good. Uh, I think that was a great question and answer period. Once again, thank you for your thoughtful questions. Thank you for coming tonight. Um, Please come back uh, next week for the conclusion of the series uh, and bring friends. Uh, If you're interested in reviewing the sermon or the question and answer, it'll all be posted online tomorrow. Uh, Let me pray for you and we'll go. God, the trustworthiness of scripture is something that, if we're going to understand it at all, we have to kind of take hypothetically and on credit to begin with, but it's also something that can be tested uh, and experienced and even proven in our own lives. And so this is what I ask for my friends and my family here tonight, Lord, that as they engage with scripture, as they wrestle, uh, as they read uh, from experts, as they weigh opinions, Lord, as they hold the scripture up, that it would be proven faithful and true and, and solid enough to build their lives on. And I know that I'm not asking that, uh, Lord, in, uh, in any sort of discord with your will, Lord, because you have given us the scriptures and you have imbued them with its attributes so that we can live in light of them, so that we can truly know you, your plan for us, and what you've accomplished towards our salvation in Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, uh, that we would continue to grow in our understanding with the help of your spirit and with the sweat of our brow. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good night.